Dear congregation, you could say the whole word of God is one great call, a call of God to him to return, to come, because God is a God who speaks, not to drive away, but speaks in order to draw, to draw ones like us to himself. He calls, come. He calls, return. And how shall we return? How shall we come? Then we can be so thankful that there's not only calls to come, but that there's also great I wills in the word of God. And those great I wills of God are so powerful and so full of grace because the God who says I will does what he says. And he's a God who draws, who brings to himself, who does so initially, who does so time and again. He does so because he has said it He has said it also in our text this morning. Verse 14 of chapter 2 of Hosea. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably to her. This is the God who speaks to us this morning. Behold, I will. Let us hear of the pursuing love of the heavenly bridegroom, the pursuing love of the heavenly bridegroom, first promising to allure, second promising to lead, and third promising to comfort. The pursuing love of the heavenly bridegroom, promising to allure, promising to lead, and promising to comfort. Hosea is a gripping book, also the beginning of Hosea. The Lord calls Hosea to marry a woman named Gomer. And he knows that this woman will be an unfaithful woman. After he marries Gomer, she conceives and it says, and bear him a son. And the Lord says, call his name, verse 4, Jezreel of chapter 1. And then in verse 6 we read, she conceived again and bare a daughter. And there's one word missing. Bear him. Because she did not bear him a daughter. This was a daughter from another man. And God knew it and said, call this daughter Lo-Ruhamah. Lo means no, and Ruhamah is mercy. No mercy. And then after Lo-Ruhamah was weaned, a couple years later, verse 8 says, Gomer conceived and bare a son, again by adultery. And God says, call his name Lo-Ami. Lo is not am, people. E is my, not my people. This wife, Gomer, is unfaithful and these children are not his own. And yet Hosea is to remain faithful to her and care for these children. 
It makes his wife's conduct all the more unexplainable and terrible. And don't you think people around would have wondered what is going on? Here is this woman who is, who is going after others and having children with others. And yet Hosea still has her as his wife. Why does she do what she does? And why does he do what he does? Why is she unfaithful and why is he faithful? And that's exactly what God intended, that um, there would be these questions, what is going on? And in the midst of it all, God would use this in order to teach Israel a lesson and to say, Israel, you are this unfaithful one. You are, <clears throat> you are like Gomer. <clears throat> and if anyone would say, no, no, I'm not like that then the prophet would have to agree with them, no, you're not like that. You're actually far worse than this unfaithful bride. Because God is far better and far greater than Hosea was. Because God is perfect. God is a perfect husband. God is the one who has come to Israel and established a bond with Israel and said, you are to be for me and for none other. You're to have no other gods beside me. You're to be all for me. And there was every reason for that because there's no God like God. God is the incomparable God. God is the only living God. And God is the one who's worthy of all our heart, all our life, all that we are, all to be devoted to him. He's so full of glory. He's so full of grace. He's so full of love. Why would we ever go to anyone other than this God? And that's exactly what makes that turning away from this God so unexcusable, so terrible. And yet that's what Israel has done. Notice how we, we read of how they, they thanked Baal and Ashtoreth for what they had. They thought their corn and their wine came from these gods. And they said, as they said in verse 5, and because they thought all their good came from these gods, they went after those other gods. And they used what they had from these gods, as they thought, for themselves. Notice the emphasis in verse 5. My bread, my water, my wool, my flax, my oil, my drink, it's all mine. These gods have given to us for us to use for ourselves. What a terrible way to, to live. And no wonder this chapter begins with those warnings and judgments. Notice in verse 6, there is a, therefore, behold, I will. Because she has done this, behold, I will. And then already we know if God is observing their sin and says, therefore, I will, we can expect it to be painful. I will hedge up thy way with thorns. I'll put a hedge of thorns around her so that she can't go 
where she wants to go because she meets that hedge of thorns. Coming here, I was driving along, and all of a sudden I came to a, a road close sign, and I couldn't get past it. And go that way. But it says, I will hedge up her way. She's used to going these ways towards her idols, towards her pleasures, and I'm going to hedge up that way so she can't reach it anymore. <clears throat> Behold, I will. And then in verse 9, there's another, therefore, I will. Because she has done this, Therefore, I will return and take away my corn in the time thereof and my wine in the season thereof. Do you notice? She thought the corn was her own. She thought what she had was her own to do what she wanted with it. And he says, you've forgotten it's mine. Everything you have is mine. And when I see you misusing it, I will take it away. I will take away my corn, my wine. You thought it came from Baal. I will take it away, and you will see how utterly helpless Baal is to give you anything. If I take, no other God can give it to you. I will take it away. And on top of it, as she is stripped of these things, she will lose her attractiveness to others. She will lose the enjoyment of, of her sinful pleasures. Joy will cease. She'll become miserable, and rightly so, because verse 13 says, she has forgotten me and gone after other lovers. And when you do that, what else can you expect than judgment when you forsake God and you go after other lovers? Two times already we've heard what she's been, and then therefore I will. She's been, therefore I will. And now again, we have another in verse 13. Therefore, behold, I will. And as you've been reading so far, if you would stop here and you just come to that therefore I will for a third time, you would expect now it will be even worse Every time it's getting worse. And what will it be now? Now it will be utter judgment. Now it will be utter destruction. After all, what does she deserve? If it's a therefore, it must be judgment. And yet here we read those astonishing words in verse 13. Therefore, I will allure her and speak comfortably to her. And now you say, this really doesn't make any sense. Therefore, I will allure her. Should it not be, therefore, I will judge her. Allure her is a language of love. If you allure, you want to attract someone to yourself. It's used for a young man who falls in love with a young lady and he wants to attract her attention and he wants to win her heart and he does all he can in order to, to allure her to himself, to draw her to himself so that they may go out, so that they may be married, so that they may be one. I will allure her. My 
unfaithful bride who's forsaken and forgotten me, ignored and spurned me, who's been enticed by other men. He says, I will allure her back, and my alluring power will be greater than all the power of all those other gods and all the attraction of sin. I will allure her. Oh, congregation, there's such an irresistible power in these words of God. Behold, I will allure. It's the, the attractive power of the love of this God that is determined to show itself even towards those who have spurned it, who have despised it, who have gone their own way. Behold, uh, therefore I will allure. He may do so in sudden ways. He may do so in more hidden ways, in more gradual ways. But this is what he says, I will allure her so that her heart is back with me. Therefore, maybe a therefore that's hard to understand. The earlier therefores in this chapter made sense. Sin, therefore, judgment. Sin deserves judgment. Isn't that so? The natural, therefore, when we sin is judgment. Because God is just and God must punish sin. All your sin, all my sin, all sin, wherever he finds it, sin, therefore, punishment. If thou, Lord, shouldst mark iniquity, O Lord, who shall stand? There's none, none of us. And yet in this text, there's a therefore, I will allure. Is that therefore, what is it based on? It can't be based on anything in her, any worthiness in these idolaters that demands this conclusion. Is it not the therefore? of love. He knows if it depended on them, they would continue forgetting him forever. They would just go further and further away from him. He knows if it depended in any way upon anyone to come back to him, they would never come. And therefore, he says, I will, because he sees how corrupt we are. He says, therefore I will. That's how great his love is. That's how much he desires to have sinners back with him again, restored to him again, knowing his love again. Therefore, I will allure her. And is that not, not only so humbling that God knows if it depended on us, it'd never happen. But is it not also so encouraging for someone who maybe discovers how wayward their heart is, how bent on going away from God, 
someone here this morning who feels, I know how to go astray, but I don't know how to get back to God. I know how to become ensnared in sin, but I don't know how to break free. Someone here who knows how to sin, but not how to return to God. Listen to his voice. It's the voice of the almighty God of love that says this morning, therefore, I will allure her. And if that's so, then you don't have to to hide anything from this God. You don't have to pretend anything before this God. That you may come before this God and you may confess, Lord, this is what I am. I have that stubborn heart, that hard heart, that wayward heart, that heart that fails to love thee as thou art worthy of. Oh Lord, here I am. And it's this I will that will conquer it all. It's this alluring grace and love that will conquer it all. What a reason to be amazed when you look at yourself and you see, after all the love that he's shown me, I've gone astray. From this heavenly bridegroom who has come to me, who has even shown his love to me in the past, and what has become of me now? And you see no attractiveness in yourself for him to come back again to you as his bride. He sees that, he knows that, and yet he says, I will allure her back again. He will not give up on his bride. And even if this morning you don't dare say you are part of the bride of Christ, how do people become part of the bride of Christ? It's this alluring power of the love of God in Christ. He says, I will allure her and be convinced of this, that the power of that love that's in his heart that makes him say, I will allure her is far greater than the power of your heart to remain closed for that love. He says, I will allure her. And oh, that this this very promise of God would break down all your resistance this morning, that you can't stay away from such a God who allures. How does he do so? How does he allure? He does so in a way that we would not expect. He says, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. Does a loving husband allure a bride into a wilderness, into a barren wilderness? And yet that's what we see in our second point, the pursuing love of the heavenly bridegroom, promising not only to allure, but also to lead. You're right that a wilderness is not a place of comfort and provision and joy and life in Scripture. Often the wilderness is the opposite of a paradise. Paradise is a garden of life 
where all is joy and peace and delight, and a wilderness is a place of barrenness. We sang, didn't we? I wander in the wilderness. I wander in a barren land where all the streams are dry. It's that place that, that there is not lush pasture to feed on. There is not abundant fountains to drink from. Places in the wilderness may be uninhabited because they're uninhabitable, barren. It's a picture of what would happen to Israel. The 10 tribes would be led into exile by the Assyrians and Judah would be led into exile by the Babylonians and all their corn and wine would be taken away and they'd walk exiled and barefoot into captivity. Why? We can also ask that today. Why, when the Lord allures, does he bring into a wilderness? He can do so by taking things away. He can do so by doing so outwardly, that he takes away your health and he takes away your possessions or he takes away loved ones. He takes away opportunities or abilities to pursue your enjoyments and your hobbies and your pleasures. He takes away those opportunities to pursue those sins that you once did. He takes away your dreams that you had. And he cuts off those hopes that you had for the future. He may take away things in your life. Why does he do so? Is it because he's cruel? Or is it because... They've become idols, and your heart has become fixed upon them, and he takes them away. And maybe he doesn't take them away literally, physically. You still have your possessions. You still have your loved ones. You still have those, those things that you may do, but he takes you away the enjoyment of them from you, and your heart becomes so dry, so empty so unsatisfied even with all the things that you have around you. Outwardly, things continue on similar to how they did before, but he takes away the enjoyment of them. Why? Again, is it because he's seen they've become idols, idols that distract from him, That's what was the case in Israel. Her heart was fixed on these other things and on these other gods. He says he'll take them away. But is it also to expose poverty? They could get along just fine in that promised land with their corn and their wine and everything else. They were okay and they did not realize how needy they actually were. And also today, the Lord may lead into a wilderness spiritually to show how poor we actually are. Have you not learned that? That maybe there is a time in your life you were like Laodicea. You thought you were rich and increased with goods and you had need of nothing. And then the Lord came and the Lord showed you that actually you are poor and miserable and blind and naked. And that you are full of need. The Lord says, I'll bring you into a wilderness in order to show you just how needy you are. 
and that all your idols cannot help you in your need. All the other things that you had in your life to give you pleasure, to give you satisfaction cannot help you in the midst of your true need of your soul. Now what is that? Does he not also lead into the wilderness in order to expose sin for what it is? So often, the wilderness is a consequence of sin in the word of God. And he, why does he lead into the wilderness? Not only as a consequence of sin, but also to expose the reality of sin. So that they would come to realize God has brought us into the wilderness because we had been trusting in these other gods to give us a paradise. And when we trust in other gods to give us a paradise, God must expose the sinfulness of that also by leading into a wilderness. The Lord sent, brought into the wilderness to humble before him. Leviticus 26 already speaks of how he would bring them into exile and there their hearts will be humbled and they will accept the punishment of their iniquity. There in the exile, there in the wilderness, they will accept that punishment and they will confess, Lord, this is what we deserve because of our sin against thee. The Lord says, I will lead into the wilderness and it's that way to deliver from idols and to expose the reality of need and helplessness and sin. But this is the amazing thing, congregation. He does not say in this text, I will send them into the wilderness. That's judgment. God sending you away into the wilderness of exile. No, he says, I will lead them into the wilderness. Do you catch the difference? If someone is leading you, what's happening? That person is going with you. You are following that person. You are with that person. And what is God promising to do? He's saying, I will lead them into the wilderness. That means I will go with them so that we may be alone together there in the wilderness. Is that not beautiful? When the Lord takes away all those distractions that have been so filling your life that you hardly had thought of God. And yes, you came to church and even in church your thoughts were going out to your work of the last week and the things you hope to do next week and, and the people around you and everything else that the Lord stops you and he says, no, I will lead you into the wilderness to be alone with me, to clear away all those distractions so that it's just you and me. That's what this is about. It's not a place of God forsakenness, but a place where the Lord is. You remember how God first led them into the wilderness, out of Egypt into the wilderness. Why did he lead them into the wilderness? It's so that they would be alone with God. And that's where he spoke to them from Mount Sinai. That's where he spoke to them 
<clears throat> through Moses from that pillar of cloud so that he would be out there alone with them, alone without distraction. And so the Lord says also today, I will lead them her into the wilderness. I will lead you to that place of being alone with me. In Ezekiel, he says, I will plead with you face to face. My friend, have you ever come to be alone with God so that it's no longer about people anymore? It's no longer about all the things you have and all the things you do anymore. That you're there alone with God. Is that what you desire? Is that also what we seek? We're so busy. There's so much noise all the time. And we keep ourselves so busy. And the moment we have a spare moment, what do we do? We pull that phone out of our pocket. Young people, are there times when you set everything aside? You set that phone aside, and you only have a Bible. And you desire to be there all alone with God. Speak, Lord. how we need such times that it's just about him and what he has to say to us. This is what he also promises. Because that's also the problem, isn't it? We can even be set aside our phones and we can be there just with a Bible. And yet our thoughts can go so many different directions. He says, I will lead her into the wilderness to be with me because I will be there. He promises to show his glory and to speak in a way that delivers from all those other distractions and that you see something of who this God is. There's nothing so humbling and there's nothing so blessed than to be delivered from those idols and those distractions and to be alone with him in the wilderness to hear him speak because he speaks. And that's our third point. The heavenly bridegroom not only promises to allure and to lead, but also to comfort. The Lord says, I will be there in the wilderness with this unfaithful one. I will break down those idols in her heart. I will bring her to repentance and I will speak comfortably unto her. Literally, I will speak to her heart. I will speak words that go right into her heart. That expression in the Hebrew to speak to
to the heart is a word that's used, for example, of a comforter. That's why it's translated, I will speak comfortably to her. We find that in Genesis 50, for example, when Joseph revealed himself to his brethren, you recall that he finally said, as that great one of Egypt, I am Joseph. And what did they do? They feared. They trembled because they realized this is the one who we threw into the pit and he now has all power over Egypt. He just needs to speak and we're dead. They feared. And what did he do? We read in in verse 21, he comforted them and spake kindly unto them. Literally, he comforted them and spake to their hearts. Those words of comfort were exactly the words that they needed in their hearts. And that would give comfort to their hearts. And what were those words? Fear not. Fear not, he said. You meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. Fear not, I will care for you. You and your children, fear not. What a word of comfort. When you realize, I've sinned, I've been full of adultery, I've been full of idolatry, I've wandered away, and why would he ever want to have anything to do with me? That he comes and he says, fear not. That's what he does. That's what he speaks. Fear not. We read it so often on the pages of Scripture, those words, fear not. Fear not, Isaiah 41, thou worm Jacob and ye men of Israel, I will help thee, saith the Lord, and thy Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel. Or chapter 43, O Israel, fear not, I have redeemed thee, I have called thee by thy name, thou art mine. And is that not also what he says here when he says that give the valley of Achor for a door of hope. The valley of Achor is where Achan was condemned to death, stoned to death, and yet in that place of judgment, he will give a door of hope. In that place where we, there's worthiness of condemnation, he will open up that way of hope. Fear not. This expression is also used not only for those who fear, but also for those who may be downcast. It's use of David after Absalom was killed, and you recall that David was so overwhelmed with grief that his soldiers became ashamed and cast down, and instead of this being a glorious victory, they were about to slip away in shame and being in their downcast state. And then Joab said, now arise, go forth and speak comfortably. Speak to the heart of thy servants. The word to the heart of a downcast, ashamed person is a word that overcomes that grief. And does he not still do so today? He speaks comfortably to the soul that's bowed down, to the soul that's ashamed this morning. And he says, What does he say? He says that he will love freely. And that's really what speaking to the heart is. It's showing 
love. It fits with allure. I will allure her and speak to her heart. I will allure her in love and I will speak of my love to her heart. You deserve to be cast away. But in Jeremiah 31, he says, Yea, I have loved thee with an everlasting love. Therefore, with loving kindness have I drawn thee. Or as he says in Hosea 14, I will heal her backslidings. I will love her freely. Or as he says here in verse 19, I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies and in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. This is the God who speaks. He speaks of his love to those who think, how can he love someone like me? I will speak comfortably. I will speak to her heart. And what is at the heart of all this comfort? Is it not Christ alone? What is the message that can comfort your heart? Is it not Christ alone? Nothing else. He is the one who came. He is the one who took on himself that great burden of iniquity of an unfaithful bride. He is the one who took on himself that curse that was due to her for her sin. He is the one who endured all the judgments that this bride deserved because of her sin because of her unfaithfulness. He is the one who bore the very curse of God. He is the one who bore the natural, therefore, sin, therefore, judgment. He is the one who bore that judgment. He is the one who was forsaken, forsaken by his Father in the very hellish agony that he endured. What a comfort. What a basis of comfort that is in the Lord Jesus Christ as the one who suffered such things in order to clear away that guilt, to wash it all away. He is that one who was perfect and holy and pure and lovely. He is the one who, who deserved the presence of God and to enjoy that presence of God every moment of his existence. And he is the one who is the perfect covering for an unfaithful bride who has dishonored her bridegroom. He is a perfect covering for someone who is not even part of the bride of Christ. He's a covering for sin that makes God say, covered in Christ, you are beautiful, you belong with me. He is the comfort, and he is the one through whom God shows his love, and he is the one for whose sake God says, I will allure, because he 
Christ is ultimately that great bridegroom and he cannot be without a bride. He loved her, gave himself for her, and is determined to have her. That's why God says, I will allure her and I will lead her into the wilderness and I will speak comfortably unto her. Christ, it's all through Christ and his love and his redeeming grace. This is who God is. This is what God does. Is this what draws you, draws you to this God, his love? Are you going to leave this church building and just go after other lovers, just go after other idols, just go after other pleasures, just go after other sins, after hearing of such a God, such a God of love? And think that the things of this earth are of more value than him. What absolute folly. And if that's the direction your heart goes, there's only one thing to do, and that's confess that to God. Lord, my heart is so corrupt. And then he says, and I will allure you with such a heart, and I will speak also to you, and I will bring you to myself and show you my love. Oh, let that promise direct you to this God to know its fulfillment, to know his love, which is so incomparable. And, and bride of Christ, live out of this promise of God, this faithful promise of God, of this bridegroom who betrothes you unto himself in faithfulness, even in the midst of all your unfaithfulness, he will not give up. How can you then go after other lovers? How can you then go after other idols? And yet you find you do. But greater than your waywardness is his faithfulness, who says, behold, I will allure her, and I will bring her into the wilderness, and I will speak comfortably to her. He will, to his praise. Amen. O oh Lord God, we pray to thee and we give thee thanks that thou art God and thou art who thou dost reveal thyself to be also in this text. Lord, there is no love like thine, a love that goes out to those who have turned away from thee and despise that love and sinned against thy grace and that thou dost not give up, that thou dost bring to repentance, and thou dost speak to the hearts of such. Lord, whoever we are, thou dost know where we are spiritually. Thou dost know our condition, our state. Lord, seek each one of us out for the first time or again. Allure us. Bring us to be alone with thee and to hear 
thy gospel of comfort in Jesus Christ. And so to sing there, to sing of thy love as greater than anything this world can ever offer and any idol can ever give. Lord, we pray to bless us further in this day. Help us, gather us together again in this evening and bless thy word also then. Forgive graciously our sin and receive our thanks for thy mercy and hear us in Jesus' name alone. Amen.